Ben Burgess is a philosophy professor and the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He is also one of the authors of the recently published book, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. You can also find him on patreon.com slash where he writes two essays a week exclusively for his Patreons. Links to all of these can be found in the description. Um, okay, so... Um, as an introduction, uh, would you? So, could you tell us? Oh, first of all, thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Obviously, oh, pleasure, yeah. it was very kind of you. Um, could you tell us how you got interested in philosophy and what motivated you to get into politics? Sure. I mean, as as far as as philosophy goes, I mean, I, some of that was just like. Um, you know, trial and error in college. This is, you know, these are like the classes that I was, you know, I found most interesting, but, you know, I, I think I've, I think I've always liked, um, you know, thinking about ideas. And I think that like what philosophy could do uh, that's, that's maybe different from, from other academic fields or, you know, in a different way, right. Is, uh, is that it, it really gives you the chance to take a lot of your most sort of, basic beliefs and uh, hold them up for scrutiny and think about whether you really, um, you know, like ideas that you might have just sort of passively absorbed, you know, from uh, the atmosphere around you. Uh, if, if on reflection, you know, you, you still agree, if not, what other perspectives are. And I think there's something very liberating about that, uh, you know, that I'm sure, that I'm sure appealed to me. Uh, and, and as far as, as politics, um, in a way, I mean that that predated even the the philosophy interest. Uh, that you know, I, w I was certainly, um, you know, I, I I was you know I had uh, left wing views, you know, going back, you know, like to when I was a teenager, and, and certainly a little bit later, I was involved in organizing, you know, anti war protests in two thousand and three. You know, when the uh, invasion of Iraq was about to start. But I think like a lot of people, probably, I sort of um, went into hibernation politically for a long time after that, uh, that, you know, I was, I was doing other things with my life, and, I was, uh, and, and it was also just a very dismal time period, you know. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of, um, it didn't really seem like there were a lot of openings, you know, for this, this sort of perspective, you know, that I, that I had as a socialist. Uh, so, so really, you know, my political activity for, for many years was pretty much limited to like, um, occasionally like, you know, reading the occasional, you know, Glenn Greenwald column and like, uh, and, and getting into arguments with my liberal friends at the bar about like Obama and drones, you know, that was, that was, that was kind of it, you know? Uh, so then, then I think like a lot of people, uh, when the first Bernie Sanders campaign happened in, in 2016 or really, you know, 2015 when that was starting, I think that um, that reactivated me to, to a great extent because, because you know, it, it seemed like, uh, I mean, I didn't think it was going to even go as far as it did, but, you know, it's, it seemed like there was um, this opening in, in mainstream politics of the real world that wasn't just sort of like, you know, going to some meeting with three people, who, you know, who already agree with you uh, for for a, a more serious kind of left perspective. And, you know, I, I 
joined the Democratic Socialists of America around then, like a lot of people did. And, um, and you know, I was, you know, I was very, um, you know, like, I mean, obviously, <laughs> both of these things had unhappy endings, you know, but like, I, I was also very excited and energized by what was going on in the UK with Corbyn and, you know, and, and, um, and so, and so, I mean, I think that's kind of how I, I got into to politics and then, uh, you know, back into politics. And then I think sort of what I'm doing now was a little bit of a fluke because like I'd gotten, um, I mean, I think I mostly just like, I spent a lot of time like arguing with like, you know, extended family members and stuff about Jordan Peterson uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and this uh, because I'd spent a lot of time, you know, far too much time doing this. Um, I'd seen my friend Doug Lane, uh, who I'd known from other contexts a long time ago, was organizing this like quasi academic conference, you know, about it, uh, about, res- you know, responding to Peterson for the left. And so I got in touch with him and said, yeah, I submitted an abstract to that. And he said, well, actually, I was, I was wondering if you'd ever want to write um, a book for us. Uh, you know, he's the editor of, of Zero Books, you know, and, um, and he, and he sort of laid out what that first book, you know, gives him an argument, you know, would be because I think he'd, he'd seen, um, you know, he'd seen me talk a lot about logic because like of the sort of esoteric academic interests and, you know, logical paradoxes and things like that. And, uh, and, and it took me like a little while to wrap my head around what he was talking about. But then like, I sort of realized this like, Oh yeah, this is actually, uh, an important, um, this would actually be like good and important. And there's like a, a certain like necessary niche that this would be filling. Um, I'm quite interested. Uh, I think this, my question here leads on quite nicely from the point you're making about the sort of sad endings, um, that come from, from, I'm not a socialist myself, by the way, I'm a, I'm a horrible centrist and I'm sorry for that. Um, but I was just wondering, over. <laughs> I was, I was, I was quite originally energized by the, by the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn campaign. Yeah. Um, and I think towards the end for me, I, the more I got involved in politics, the more I found my home elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that, if that's the same with what happened with other young people getting involved, but I'm quite interested. What do you think was the reason for this sort of, this original like burst of energy and the underdogs really, you know, taking the scene, which sort of ended with, the sort of the moderates that you'd expect winning at the end of the day? Yeah. I mean, so obviously I'll, I will say that the, the boring thing and that like anything like this is going to be extremely multi-causal, right? Like that, like that people, mm-hmm. um, nobody, you know, nobody wins or loses an election for only one reason ever. Right. You know, that's so, um, and I also think it's a little bit dangerous. I think there's a certain danger in thinking about this um, to uh, to commit this kind of um, modal fallacy. So uh, modal logic is the branch of logic where you're thinking about possibility and necessity. And so there's this kind of uh, modal fallacy originally made uh, famous by Aristotle where you sort of say, well, this happened, therefore it's the only thing that could have happened. Right? You know, that like... Uh, then of course, I think that uh, I think some of these things, you know, probably like uh, there are any number of factors where if you adjust a couple of them, 
right? It would have gone the other way. That said, I do think that there are some big picture things that we can talk about that probably, uh, even as different as they were, that those two situations had in common. Um, and I think probably the biggest one is not really about the kind of interesting fighting on the left, uh, you know, between like, you know, maybe the liberal left and the socialist left, but about what was going on on the right, because um, both the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, saw this rise of uh, right-wing populism, you know, in the, the mid-2010s. Uh, so obviously in the U.K. it took the form of Brexit, and in the U.S. it took the form of the Trump presidency. Um, and I think this is, like, the U.S. case maybe a little bit more complicated, but, like, to me it seems, like, particularly clear in, in the British case because um, sure. because that last election was as close as you're ever going to get a general election to be to be in single issue that like, you know, that like all, all anybody wanted to talk about or think about, right. You know, was, was Brexit um, mm -hmm. of course was a disaster for, uh, for the left for a few reasons. One of which is that the, you know, labor party, like, was like least certain what to say about that, right? You know, that they'd gone through some pretty big shifts over the course of a few years. And so if like you have a single issue election and you don't have a clear message on that issue, uh, whatever that message is, right? You know, but like the point is, you, you know, we could, we could have the counterfactual argument about which message would have been effective, but just not having a clear message at all, right? Um, has, is, is obviously going to play very badly for you. Um, and, mm. And my, my sense is that, uh, like, there's a lot of stuff, like, if, if you, you know, if you look at, um, certainly from, uh, you know, from my, my perspective, right, there's, there's, there's tons of good stuff at that Labor Manifesto last time, but sure, sure. It also, I think, uh, because there was so much of it, I think it might have kind of had a feel to a lot of voters, like a Christmas wish list that, uh, that yeah, you know, that, sure. like, you sort of say, like, oh, uh, you know, we're going to do all 200 of these things and then people kind of tune out because like, okay, sure you are. Right. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I think the more you can, um, you can kind of, and that's especially a problem in this thing that's very close to being a single issue election, because if you're, if you're going to, if everybody is hyper-focused on one issue and what little you have to say about that reeks of being an unsatisfying compromise between internal factions, uh, then, um, then your your only hope is to change the subject. You can say, "Oh, okay." Instead of talking about Brexit, we're going to talk about X. And if instead sure. of having one clear idea of what X should be, you have like two hundred ideas, that's probably not going to play well for you. And then I think, um, and then especially when like some of the stuff that are the best issues, the the right is at least pretending that like they're not going to do right so like so so you know all all boris johnson has to do for some vote is just like say the words i'm not going to do anything to the nhs and like enough people believe him right that like you can't make sure, the election sure. about that uh which is also similar to part of what trump did with uh was talking about um uh what he's talking about uh uh entitlements you know social security and medicare medicaid sure, in sure. 2016 election uh, and then the way that I think that the uh, American situation parallels that is that um, even though, of course, we didn't have like an issue that was 
that was as overwhelming, you know, as Brexit in the minds of voters, uh, because, you know, because Bernie was fighting in a, in a Democratic primary, in a way you did have one overwhelming issue in the minds of voters, mm-hmm. which was uh, getting rid of Trump, right? That, sure. and, um, and so even though obviously people like me had, had been making the case for years that, um, that the, the, you know, the Bernie uh, agenda would have, been, would have been a more effective counter to, you know, to Trump's right-wing populism, yeah, yeah. and, 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 and I, I still think it would have been. I think that maybe like the combination of plague and 1930s-style depression will be enough to get Biden in anyway. We'll see, right? But, uh, but like, because of that, I think that, um, you know, there are actually a lot of exit polls uh, like it from like Super Tuesday, which is like really when when Bernie you know started to crash and burn, you know that like yeah, he, yeah. lost he lost South Carolina. Like he did this amazing thing nobody had ever done before of winning all three of the first three states. That he lost South Carolina, which was maybe unsurprising. It's a pretty conservative place, but like he also lost it by it enough. You know, like like he it was also such a significant loss that I think that when the other candidates dropped out and consolidated behind Biden. You know, he there was this perception that he had the wind in his back, and I think that even if you look at a lot of those Super Tuesday states where Biden won, uh, polls there show that on on Bernie's signature issue, Medicare for all, uh, most voters actually agreed with him. Right? That's just oh, not yeah. what that's not what they were voting on. They were voting on okay, uh, you know, we're so desperate to like get back to normal after the last four years of Trump. Uh, which, by the way, I think Bernie could have done a better job speaking to that that desire. Uh, but we're so desperate to get back to normal that, like, all we want to do, all we care about, is just who's going to beat Trump. And you know, mm-hmm. if you're thinking about, and it's it's a it's an uphill battle to say, even though I think it's true that this that this um, that this very like outsidery kind of you know insurgent candidate is actually going to be the most electable, it sounds much more like common sense to say, oh, the two-term vice president of this incredibly popular Democratic president is, of course, going to be the most electable one. So I I know all that was kind of long-winded, but I think think the point is that, like, the larger thing that I think was the the undoing of the left in both the U.S. and the U.K., the last, in the Democratic primaries here, the last general election in the U.K., uh, has to do with um, the fact that we haven't, you know, we haven't yet figured out a good way to counter the way that the rise of right-wing populism has kind of shifted the conversation. Mm. I'm quite interested also just to sort of add on to that conversation then we can move away from it. But um, to what extent do you think, because after the loss of labor in, in this country, we saw like the rise of a little bit of something called blue labor. Um, yeah. and blue labor is a socially conservative version of um, of, of socialism, basically, of, of labor. And they basically said, um, you know, we, we, we think that the, the, the socialist labor of went way too socially liberal and forgot its working class roots. Like, you look at the North. So in this country, it's the North is our, like, is our, like, uh, is, like, the, what tends to either go left and has, for the first time, ever gone right. Um, and they were saying, well, look, you know, the North aren't, aren't you know so socially liberal they're actually pretty socially conservative so we need to actually consider that what we've done is we've gone we've tried to appeal to these sort of metropolitan and and students so much that we've gone so socially liberal we've lost touch with the with the actual voter we should be appealing to and i think the same can be sort of said for bernie sanders um maybe some people were saying well look bernie 
Michigan, he won last time against Hillary. Why did he lose this time? I mean, because, and, and some could say that that's because loads of working class people in Michigan who'd lost their jobs and were losing even, you know, were losing even more under Trump yeah. felt that he'd just gone too socially liberal and was trying to appeal to these students and appeal to trying to get a more diverse movement, which ended up sort of um, breaking that. So what are your thoughts on the idea that maybe the, the socially liberal left has lost touch with the working class photo? Uh, yeah, so there was, there was, a, there was a, article uh very recently by angela nagel and michael tracy you probably see that 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 you know was was making this case uh and i don't know that i go as far as to say that there's there's no truth to it i think that there are probably um ways of talking certainly about about some of these things that um that have um you know, that might be, that, you know, that might be alienating, you know, to, to certain voters. Um, and, and I think there's certain, you know, but I, I also, um, so, okay. So I'm really, really concretely, right. I think that uh, I'm certainly open to the idea that there might be like real, like electoral trade-offs, right. You know, that, that the, um, in, in the, uh, you know, uh, as, you know, the wisdom of, uh, of Mick Jagger, right? You can't always get, you know, all that you want. Uh, so, you know, so sometimes, you know, what you need might be to, you know, might be to make certain trade-offs, right? Fair enough, right? Uh, but when you, but if you care a lot about um, multiple goals here, right, that, you know, that, that you, you want everybody to get healthcare, for example, but, uh, you know, you're also horrified by, you know, the, uh, uh, by you know right wing immigration policies perhaps right you know then uh, then if it turns out that there is a real trade off there then, then you know like electorally then you know you obviously have a hard decision to make about what's you know what's negotiable what's a point of principle but before we even get into that uh, I'd really like to see more direct evidence than uh, Nagel and Tracy gave in that article for the claim that um, that these things. Uh, you know, that these things would be, you know, electoral, uh, electoral winners, right? That like, in other words, um, you know, if, you know, that on any of these issues, you know, uh, immigration, gay and trans rights, et cetera, that, you know, that like, I, I, I like really like this, this is a very, like, almost like a very like apolitical normie kind of complaint that like, you know, all right, if, if you're going to make that claim, I want to see some polls, you know, to, to back the, you know, to back this up, right? If, if you're, if we're going to make this like, you know, horrible choice between two things that we care very much about, right? You know, I'd, I'd at least like to, to see that. What I'm, uh, what I'm, I'm more convinced of, though, is uh, is that even if, um, even if we will like that, we're not necessarily faced with that. And I'm cautiously optimistic, at least in the U.S., which is, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, I, I I'm more confident, you know, to pronounce about that, right? You know that. Um, than, than, you know, than about, like, social attitudes in the north of England, you know, but, uh, but in, uh, but in the, in the U.S. case, right, like, I think, yeah, when Bernie won my home state of Michigan in, uh, in 2016, uh, I don't know that, like, he'd actually shifted in a big way in between then and 2020 on, um, on most of these issues, right, the, uh, so uh, it could, you know, you could argue maybe, you know, some of his surrogates were people who were more, you know, aggressive about some of them. Not really sure how much attention, right? You know, the average voters play paid to that. I, I think in the Michigan case, 
probably you know the writing was all on the wall was on the wall well before you know the uh, the Michigan primary, but. But but I think the germ of truth in, in Nagel and Tracy's analysis that, that I that I do think is right, right is that uh, there's is that I, I think that oftentimes in terms of aesthetics and in terms of um, of just sort of like mode of presentation in terms of how you talk about the issues I think that I think that there is a certain kind of like subcultural leftism uh, that's that's very um, it's very unhelpful that like you have uh, that, uh, you know, so like what if I've always thought one of the most interesting poll, like polling results that I, that I have seen is like, you can see, you can see polls where the United States, not a big majority, but a majority will say, you know, immigrants, you know, immigration makes the country better. They'll express like uh, various like progressive views on social issues they'd hope for. But you also have like eighty percent of people of all races say they hate political correctness. You know, so they so the question then is, what does political correctness mean to them, right? Yeah. And and then um, and I think to the extent that what it, what it means to them is a certain kind of cultural affect of like moralistic policing of tiny things and you know sure, sure. holding people and all that, then then it then it sort of, the, that result starts to make a lot more sense. And, and I, I do think that we could, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's the main factor, right? But, but it, it's certainly not helping and we could do to cut a lot of that out. Sure, sure. And whilst we are at it, um, can I read you a, a quote from Slavoj Žižek in the introduction of your myth and mayhem? And I think that sums up, that will sum up Pushkin's point very well. And I, and I want to obviously get your reaction to it. Of course. Yeah, yeah, please do. So he says, if I were to indulge in paranoic speculations, I would be much more inclined to say that the politically correct obsessive regulation, like in brackets, like obligatory naming of different sexual identities with legal measures, if one violates them, are rather a left liberal plot to destroy an authentic radical left movement suffice it, it to, to recall their animosity against Bernie Sanders among some LGBTQ plus and feminist circles in brackets again who had no problems with big corporate bosses supporting them. The cultural focus of PC liberalism and Me Too is to put it in simplified way, a desperate attempt to avoid the confrontation with actual economic and political problems, i.e. To, to locate women's oppression and racism in, socioeconomic context, in its socioeconomic context. Uh, what do you think of that analysis? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I don't think, and I don't think Slavoj seriously does, right? You know, that, that any of this is... Uh, as a conspiracy, but I mean, he's, he's not wrong about, um, about some of the effects uh, of all that. And, and I'll, I'll, I mean, I will specifically like point to like a really specific example uh, in the history of the, uh, you know, history, like it's like six months ago, right? You know, but like <laughs> the, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the primary election, you know, that, that, uh, that's recently wrapped up um, of this, which, which happened when, uh, Bernie Sanders was kind of sort of endorsed by the uh, podcaster Joe Rogan mm. uh, and who, you know, I mean, in a very 
Joe Roganish way, he said like, yeah, I'm probably going to vote for Bernie, you know. Uh, so, you know, so it's, it's not exactly an endorsement, but sort of an endorsement, right? And when he said it, he then like had like a minute where he, you know, he sung Bernie's virtues on the show, right? He, he said like, here's why, you know, here's why I think he's such a good guy. And then Bernie Sanders tweeted out or, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, he's like 100. I'm sure he doesn't run his own Twitter account. But, you know, whatever staffer right, runs Bernie Sanders' Twitter account uh, tweeted out, like, a, the clip of, um, of Rogan endorsing Bernie. You know, they, they did a little, like, 45-second video of this, the campaign. Um, and there were people, and some of this was, like, more centrist liberals who supported other candidates sort of, you know, stirring the pot, you know, uh, but, but there was also an authentic element of people who were actually very left-wing and Bernie supporters who were like outraged that, uh, that Bernie Sanders was accepting and touting the endorsement uh, of Joe Rogan because, you know, he's a horrible person, and, you know, because, and they sort of went back through the, um, you know, the archives of, of everything he's ever said on the show, which, you know, he's, he's, which I think the show has been going on for like 20 years and, you know, they do like three hour episodes and by his own admission, he's high about half the time, you know, so he's said, you know, he's said many things that he shouldn't have said over the, you know, over the years and that particularly sound bad in like short context free clips, right, you know, and, um, and, and I think, I mean, really what I'd say about Rogan is that um, like a lot of people who, you know, thinks about politics sometimes, but it's like not necessarily what they're mostly, you know, I think I'm sure Joe Rogan is more interested in, you know, mixed martial arts and, you know, psychedelics than, you know, he is in politics in the first place. But, um, but like a lot of people, right. He, he has various like reactions to things he says in the news and, you know, he's not like a weird obsessive, like all of us who like, you know, has spent enough time thinking about politics for these, disparate reactions to things he has to like congeal into a coherent worldview. So sometimes he has very right-wing reactionary guests on and he'll nod along and agree with everything they say. And sometimes he has Cornell West on and he'll nod along and agree with everything he says. And, uh, um, and you know, I mean, the fact that it's so agreeable is part of why he's so popular. And then he'll, uh, you know, he'll, he'll express, you know, right-wing views about certain subjects and he'll express very left-wing views about certain subjects and honestly, what I get out of all this is, oh, wow, so uh, this, if you accept the premise that the, the purpose of an election is to get more people to vote for you than for the other guy, uh, then this is exactly the sort of person because he is where a lot of ordinary voters are, right, you know, who, who you'd want to support you. This would be a selling point for the campaign that you could get the support of the Joe Rogans of the world. Um, and in particular you know, to go back to a couple of questions ago, right, the, the question about the uh, blue labor and its American analog, um, like, in this case, none of those questions we're talking about even arise, right? You know, because it, it's not like, it's not like Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders after some long and difficult process of negotiation in which he had to, like, give up some items from his policy platform, right? He just, you know, he just volunteered an endorsement, you know, so... If you don't even have to give anything up in order to win the support of people who might easily turn to the right, then that seems like a tremendous selling point 
Sure. And the reason I bring it up in reaction to the uh, Slavoj Žižek quote is that um, is is that this is I think a lot of what he's talking about that like when you get this sort of way of presenting this kind of like um, I mean I, I realize that this is a phrase that's often used by right wingers to describe like any you know. Um, any expression of social attitudes, you know, to uh, the left of Bismarck, you know, but, uh, but, you know, but, but I think there is something to the idea that like that phrase virtue signaling that like, you know, that like a, what you're doing is to a great extent, not like trying to argue about anything that matters, but just trying to demonstrate to other people within a certain political subculture that like, you're like a righteous enough person to object to, whatever the thing is that's that's on the that's being talked about uh and it's it's not literally you know a conspiracy to undermine the left but it certainly has the effect of one yeah yeah it, it always it's it, it was weird to me like if if joe rogan endorses you you should take it because like if he's had all these like i'd say mostly he's had right wingers on than lefties yeah, mostly absolutely and if if he's convinced someone who like who hangs around with with right wingers who is friends with right wingers, Bernie Sanders has managed to move him to his position. Why wouldn't you just take it and just be yeah. happy? Move on. This this, this is a win, right? This is exactly what you're trying to do. Hmm. Hmm. So interesting. Um, I'm quite. Yeah, go for it. Go um, for it. Ben. Yeah. There are many types of socialists i guess yes. um and i i mean we were, we were saying earlier that the socialist left is very is very split all the left in general is very split um at least it is in the uk i suppose um and i'm wondering what sort of socialist wing would you attach yourself to uh-huh. um sort of how do you define socialism for yourself sure uh so, so I guess the I guess the first thing that I'd say is ninety nine percent of the time in the U.S., the U.K. in twenty twenty, when we talk when we use that word socialism, uh, what we really mean is social democracy. Uh, sure. Meaning not like the sort of um, I know that in some parts of the British left, there's like a tradition of using that phrase to like indicate something to you know, that's like somewhat to the right of what I would think of as social democracy, right? You know, like the, you know, um, like the sort of 80s social democratic split off in the Labour Party or whatever, right? That kind of thing. Sure. But like, uh, but but what I, you know, what I would think of as social democracy is just, is just uh, the, is, is an attempt that to uh, implement certain kinds of broad and deep reforms within capitalism that, you know, to, to, sure. uh, like, uh, you know, like, you know, I would, you know, and so I would think of, you know, so you think about like all the stuff that like the Clement Attlee government did in the forties. Um, and, you know, I would think of, of Jeremy Corbyn as being very much of that tradition. Uh, mm. and, and I think Bernie Sanders is also for the most part, you know, in, um, in, you know, in that tradition. And, and, and of course, and then I would, but then I would make, but then also having made that distinction right between social democracy and socialism, Whereas I think, like you know, like most people, like most socialists uh, in 2020 who aren't just like sort of hopelessly exiled to willful political irrelevance, 
I do think you have to at least start with social democracy, right? It's it's not a it's it's not you know it's it's at least a necessary condition for for anything further, right? You at least need to start by pushing for these kinds of uh, of reforms, like you know, sure. care for all, the American context, or you know, uh, whatever, renationalizing the rails, whatever, you know. And, uh, so, um, and uh, but then I would say that uh, that it, it's it's not enough for two reasons, right? Uh, one reason that, that I'd ultimately want to go beyond social democracy to socialism, properly speaking, um, is like a sort of principled or ideological reason, or the other one is is practical one. And so the ideological reason uh, is that I think that it is a problem that even when the worst sort of brutalities of capitalism have been tamed by these reforms, Mm. Uh, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that means that now everything's fine, right? You know, I think. I think that like you still have this uh, extremely hierarchical uh, structures at the heart of the economy. Uh, that you. Uh, that people. Um, you know that you have this division of society into a class of people who own businesses and a class of people who have no realistic choice except for to go to work for the first one, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes some individuals can, you know, can transfer from one group to the other, but of course, you know, uh, like, you know, that's, you know, that's like saying sometimes people win the lottery, right? You know, that like, you know, that it, it, it happens, right? But like, it's not, um, but like the same way that like everybody winning the lottery is not a, is not a plan for, you know, for eliminating poverty, right? That like, it's sure. the existence of class mobility, Right doesn't mean that it's not the case that for most working class people, they have no choice except for to go to work uh, for people, the first group and, and then, and, and submit themselves to this uh, extremely hierarchical and authoritarian, you know, uh, structure of, of just a regular capitalist business where for eight out of the 16 hours that you're awake, you, you have to, um, you have to submit to the authority of, of, of this, of this unelected, um, sure. you know, boss and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, all right. So that's the sort of, that's the sort of principled objection, but then, um, you know, I, I could certainly see how somebody could say, well, all right, but like, I could see that it would be in some sense preferable to have, um, you know, to have a post-capitalist society, but that, you know, that would obviously be an incredibly difficult and complicated, you know, undertaking to try to change that. And so, you know, if we could at least all have, you know, healthcare and this and that and the other thing, like, I can live with mm. this. Uh, mm, that's, sure. that's a very understandable reaction. And so then, uh, so then the other thing I'd point to, uh, well, has to do with when I was, you know, I was giving an example of, um, of a, a sort of Corbyn, platform item, right? You know, that there is a reason I said re-nationalizing the rails, right? And I think this is the this is the more sort of practical reason, I think, to that it's important to eventually go beyond capitalism and democratize the economy. Because anytime you have concentrated economic power, uh, that's always and everywhere going to find ways to translate itself into concentrated political power. That sure. uh, you so and the problem then is that even when once you get a nice welfare state and 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 you know nationalization of certain things that you know that um, you know because they're natural monopolies or they're just like imported services you know you think it's good to take outside of the market there's always you still got this concentrated economic power so uh, there's there's always this kind of 
you know, so there's a sense in which social democracy is always like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill, right? You know, that like you'd have to keep doing it over and over again because um, uh, not an original analogy to be asked all that from Rosa Luxemburg, but they, that, uh, that because, um, you know, because, you know, as long as you have plutocrats, right, you know, that, that you're going to get, you know, then like, no matter how many wonderful things, you know, uh, a Clement Attlee could do, right, sooner or later, you're going to get a Margaret Thatcher, and you're going to, you know, undo a lot of it, right? Um, and so I think that, I think that in a long term sense, the only way to sort of address that is to start taking pieces off the board by, uh, by taking away that concentrated economic power by, by democratizing uh, the, the economy. Okay. And, and then, and then, of course, we could talk about what that would look like, and that's 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 another complicated can of worms. But I sure. mean, that's that's why I would see it as an important goal. So that you'd essentially prevent one person or a group of politically powerful people from changing it. You'd give it to the hands of the citizen, I'd imagine, um, and that the citizen would then, as a as a as a, all the citizens would then, by their own mandate, decide what to do from that point. I guess. Yeah. No, that's right. Okay. Sure. Sure, I understand that. Um, I guess, I guess my uh, my uh, well, in theory, I think the problem with that would be. So let's say, I think fossil fuel companies, even yeah. if they were democratized, the workers would still make the same decisions. To yeah, yep. Uh, so so I had uh, actually, if you if you go back and look at, I did a. Uh, uh, debate with this YouTuber who I'm always I'm always so embarrassed when I even like pass on these YouTube names. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> call self destiny, right? You know, it's like you yeah. know, it's, you're a grown adult. Why, why do you stay? <laughs> but uh, then, so in that debate with destiny, right? You know, we we got into this, right? And, and I also have a um, uh, you can find an old article in um, in well from last year in Jacobin where where I talk about this, but but I, I think that I think that that's I think that's a good objection. I think that I'd, I'd say a couple things about it. Uh, so um, so first the first thing the first thing that I'd say is that even in a democratized economy, uh, democracy could take different forms right in different parts of the economy. Uh, so one one option uh, is is just to turn something in you know to um, to turn. Uh, like a regular capitalist business into a still private, like worker cooperative. Uh, and, and when that's done, right. I think that like your, your worry about like the fossil fuel cooperatives is probably at its most powerful, right. You know, because, um, because of course they would have a lot of the same incentives uh, as, as regular firms. Uh, and, and then uh, another would, would just be to, to take something outside of the market entirely, you know, and, and, uh, and nationalize it, right? Like the, you know, the NHS or, you know, there's other examples like that. Uh, and, and I think different ones might be appropriate for, for different uh, spheres, right? You know, so like a, in an article that I, I just did, Jack, made an example I gave is, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the, the reason that we're all inside right now, right, is... Uh, is well you know i mean obviously counterfactuals are hard but sure. um, it is horrifying that after mers and sars had already happened there wasn't a massive amount of research into respiratory diseases 
And the reason for that isn't that like farm executives are uniquely evil, like people, as far as their uniquely you know, individual moral character. Um, you know, it's not just that, uh, but that, um, but that the incentives uh, that they're operating under for uh, for things they're likely to turn a profit out in the short term aren't well served by doing that. And that's something that if if I think we had like like a nationalized farm industry, would be much more able to to take that hit, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Of you know of okay, this this seems like something that's coming over the horizon. So put a lot of money into researching this, even though this means that we're we're going to be losing money overall, right? But like I think so that's one possible answer, right? That like you could just um, that you know in pro- perhaps even in the course of of some green new deal kind of dramatic climate change action, right. You know, that you could, you could just nationalize fossil fuel industry and, and that would probably make it much more possible to, to phase it out and, you know, and replace with other sources of energy. But I think a more interesting response is to say, okay, but let's just take the premise of the question, right? Like what if, um, what if we did just have like fossil fuel cooperatives, right? Would they be, um, would you get like all of these environmentally horrifying practices are you, would you be just as likely to get those in a cooperative version, you know, private co-op as you would uh, in, in a regular capitalist business? And I think there are at least a couple of reasons to be cautiously optimistic that, um, look, I, I don't think, I don't think any of this is a panacea. I think you'd still need a strong regulatory state, you know, but uh, there's to be cautiously optimistic that they would make all the same decisions. One of which is that at least some environmentally damaging uh, practices are often bad for the health uh, of uh, of the people who work at these companies, uh, like like fracking, for example. You know, fracks up the water supply for the people who work there. Uh, so that at least one incentive they'd have it's not the only incentive, of course. You know, but like one incentive they'd have would be to try to come up with something that wouldn't you know poison the communities in which they live and the water that they drink. Uh, and that's not an incentive that you're really going to have with just like a bunch of stockholders who like don't actually live in these communities. And then the other reason I think that I'd be cautiously optimistic that you at least have slightly better outcomes, even in a private co-op is, is just this, that um, like, I sort of think about like the analogy to like, all right, if you have like uh, the more people who have to like, you know, turn the keys for the nuclear launch codes, the less likely you are to launch the nuke, right? You know, because like just having a broader sphere of people who are discussing something and deciding what to do, at least I think gives environmentally better outcomes uh, a fighting, you know, a fighting chance because like it's instead of a, a small number of people making decisions behind closed doors, if you have like a big public debate, you know, that lots of people have, none of whom you know, if you just have profit per worker, right, that's not as powerful an incentive as the sort of, like, massive amounts of wealth, you know, going through, you know, certainly the sole proprietor of a company uh, or even, like, major stockholders. Uh, so so I'm, I don't know. I'm not going to, like, claim that I've looked into the, my, my crystal ball and foreseen that, like, none of this is a problem, right, mm-hmm. in, in a socialist, you know, society. But but I, I think there are reasons to think it would at least be better. Um, so are you suggesting? Yeah, sorry, just just to summarize, yeah. um, you're suggesting that because the motive would be different. So because at the moment it's serving the shareholder, the shareholder gets you know you manage to serve yeah. the shareholder and get them the most profit. If yeah. we change the motive to the worker gets the profit, but also because the worker is affected by its decisions, 
right. we would ideally see that a lot of environmental decisions would be taken. And also, I guess the same would apply to housing decisions and all that would be yeah, taken that, much more considerate. Yeah, that, that, at least, that at least one, at least the sort of interests of the people who have to live with the result, uh, because, sure. the, because they're also the people making the decision, right, you know, would be like would be part of the calculus there. It wouldn't be the only part and like who knows, maybe they'd even still maybe the environmentally bad decision would still be taken, right? They're, you know, like uh because because, you know, at the end of the day, if you have to, you know, if you have to decide between, you know, the drinking water and your livelihood, you know, maybe you'll maybe you know, maybe you'll you know, maybe like maybe you'll go with your livelihood anyway, right? But um, you know, I think there are sure. I think assuming that you also had like a nice big welfare state of the background. So like the, so the, cost, the yeah. costs for failure aren't as cataclysmic as they are right now. Sure. Now decrease that, that would at least get the environmentally good outcome of fighting chance. But so I'm, I'm not making, I'm not necessarily making the claim that these things would like necessarily always go the right way even in this kind of society. But I am making the claim that, uh, that the, um, that, there would be more incentives going in the right direction than there are right now. Yeah, sure, and accountability as well. Sure. Um, so I had uh, two. So I've, I had two definitions of socialism from you. Yeah. Um, one of them seems to be nationalization, nationalizing more industry. Another one, democracy in the in the workplace. So. Yeah. Um, I was wondering how, how do you square the two? Because, for example, if you know teachers or schools are a nationalized industry, right? But the teachers don't have democracy at work. Sure, of course. So, and I feel you know you gave a good example with the pharmaceutical. So, for example, you could have the pharmaceutical company being nationalized. Yeah. But if you were to give the workers democracy, they would make a, they could make the decision not to invest money in respiratory diseases which is not in the interest of greater society at large. So how do you square the, the two? Yeah, right. So, so I think the actual, the actual definition of socialism I would give would be, um, would be social ownership of the means of production. In other words, that, uh, that like what's, what's definitional about socialism to me is the elimination of this division of society into a class of owners and a class of workers, right? That's the, that that would be that would be the definition, and then I think that I would say what what form socialization could take could very wildly, and if we're lucky enough to ever get this, I assume it's going to be some messy historically contingent combination of like different forms because that's just kind of how re- the real world works, right? So, um, and and I think that there are different benefits to different forms of socialization because if you sort of start by thinking about okay. What are the features about capitalism that we don't like? Um, that could, you know, that could inform. All right, so how would we then want socialism to work? But the problem is there are trade-offs because, uh, as as you perceptively indicated in your question, n- like not all of, you know, we could, you know, we sometimes have choices. We say, okay, well, capitalism has negative features X, Y, and Z. We don't like any of it, right? But then. Sometimes if we, if we uh, have a form of social organization that reverses X, it's not going to reverse Y, or it reverses Y, it's not going to reverse X, right? So there, there are trade-offs. So one of the things that we don't like about capitalism 
is the lack of workplace democracy. But another thing we don't like about capitalism um, are these sort of bad incentives that, you know, we've been talking about for like the pharmaceutical industry or the fossil fuel industry, right? But then, um, but then if we, you know, if we eliminate, um, if we eliminate the bad incentives across the board by just nationalizing everything, then we, we haven't really done much for, for, uh, for our work, no, you know, lack of workplace democracy complaint, uh, because, you know, you could have some degree of, um, of, you know, co-determination or whatever, right. You know, that like you could, you know, you could have a publicly owned industry where, you know, where you had, you know, some of the decision-making bodies maybe, you know, were, were elected or maybe some representatives on those, you know, those decision-making bodies were elected by the workforce. But ultimately, if, if, it's, if it's nationalized, if it's owned by the community as a whole, then, then by definition, that means that the people who work in it don't entirely call the shots. Uh, and, and if we have, um, you know, workers' democracy in the most obvious form, which is just converting things into cooperatives, across the board, right? That we still got some of the bad incentives. Uh, so so what, I, what I would say is that I think if you want like a reasonable society that addresses as many of these problems as possible to the extent that they can be addressed, uh, it, would probably, uh, it would probably be some combination. Uh, that way uh, you could have, um, and maybe there would be different kinds of benefits to work in, in, um, in different sectors, which, you know, obviously is true even under capitalism, but, uh, but I think, um, but I think right now, um, you know, but I think it would be more true, which is to say that like, okay, if you had a considerably expanded public sector, uh, then, then maybe, you know, that has certain advantages in terms of stability and job security, and you'd be making some trade off on the worker, worker democracy front there, because, like I said, even if you had some level of worker co-determination within the public sector, ultimately you're not going to be making the big picture decisions or, you know, you are to the extent that you're a citizen, but you know, that's, you know, like uh, you could say that by that, by that logic, you know, teachers already control the schools. Right. Uh, so um, whereas if you worked in the private cooperative sector, you would get this considerably enhanced degree of autonomy that, you know, that you'd have this much more direct control over your workplace, uh, but because there would still be a market there, uh, you know, there's, there are these risks of, you know, of firm failure and all that stuff that, you know, so, so you'd, you'd have, you'd have trade-offs there. None of it would be perfect. Uh, my only pitch would be that it would be, it's that it would all be better than what we have right now. Sure. Um, just one last point or one last question rather on this. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm quite sympathetic as a centrist um, to to cooperatives. Um, I actually quite like them. I think they work quite well historically. I think they've proven, and they and they originate from England. So how good can you get? Um, but sort of on a more serious note, um, nationalisation doesn't sit too well with me. Okay. Because what you have is you have you're, you're asking the state um, to, to get involved with something. So you'll whether that's the railways or yeah you know, the waterways or whatever um you think should be nationalized what you're yeah. asking for is you're asking for these incompetent politically motivated civil servants or politicians who probably don't really care about giving it over to experts having control and using it as political football and we and sort of we see what we saw with the railworks is the reason i guess thatcher had the chance to nationalize it is because it was just yeah. so run down by the time she inherited it so i'm interested what 
how do you sort of justify nationalizing things when in private they don't work in private i'm not necessarily suggesting they work in privatization either but at least they're functioning whereas maybe the state with in in the the case of the incompetent state it wouldn't function well i mean one interesting thing about that is that uh i suspect that you wouldn't apply that across the board uh because uh my guess is that you you wouldn't be eager for example to uh trade uh your healthcare system for mine uh, because if you if you were willing to make that trade, you wouldn't be a British centrist. You'd be a British lunatic fringe right winger. Uh, <laughs> sure. So, uh, sure. so that suggests that there there are at least some sectors in which in which nationalization has worked well. Um, mm. And and the, the question is why um, you know why perhaps you know does does it work better you know in uh, in some than others? Uh, I think certainly if you look at the history of the um, uh, of the capital C uh, communist countries, uh, you know, the Soviet Union. I mean, obviously the attempts to nationalize entire economies weren't, you know, glorious stories of, you know, uninterrupted success. But uh, uh, but I also think we could take that, that point too far, right? Because I think that, I think that what, what that experience shows that uh, nationalization has historically been the worst at is trying to produce like consumer goods, right? You know, that if you, um, that, you know, like that's the sort of cliche about the Soviet Union that, you know, everybody has like rubles in their pockets that they could spend if there was anything in the grocery store to spend it on. But like, uh, but this is the, uh, this is the old uh, socialist calculation debate that um, how given economic planning, do you have this kind of um, this, this sink that you want, right? Between production and, and, and consumer preferences, um, so, and, and I think that's, that's, that's a real problem, but on the other hand, uh, even there, there were some things it was, you know, it was, it was very, uh, very good at, right? I mean, you, you had this like crazy, uh, rapid industrialization that, you know, sort of did everything that happened in the West in like a hundred years and like 10 years. Um, and, and even that sort of like, uh, Bhaskar Sankara at his book, Socialist Manifesto, uses this phrase where he's talking about the Soviet system. It's like uh, all, all thumbs and no fingers, right? You know, that like, so meaning that there are some, you know, when it comes to this sort of like fine grained lineup between production and consumer needs, it's very bad, but it's great at churning out tractors and tanks. And, you know, thank God sure. for it. Cause, cause otherwise the Nazis would have won the war. Right. So, uh, um, so I think that there are probably, um, there are probably some things that nationalization should be better at than others. I also think that, uh, that it's, um, that when, uh, as, as technology progresses, uh, some of these, um, you know, some of the worries about like, about planning could actually be, be mitigated, um, by that, right. If you, if you look at some of the sort of features like, um, uh, Leigh Phillips and uh, Mikhail Roswowski in their uh, book, The People's Republic of Walmart, right? They make the point that these giant, like Walmart, for example, right, has a larger internal GDP than Sweden does. Uh, and, uh, and that is internally a command economy, right? They, they, there, there, are no, there are no internal markets in Walmart, right? Uh, they, uh, there, were, there are some cases of companies where there's some like lunatic libertarian CEO who tries to introduce internal markets and, you know, uh, Sears being the most famous example, and it doesn't tend to go well. Uh, so, and if you look at some of the techniques they already use, uh, or like Amazon, you know, uses uh, sure. 
I think you can maybe see the glimmers of how a more effective kind of economic planning might work uh, within a state sector in the future. But I'm not, I'm not betting the farm on that, right? Like, I'm not saying like, um, you know, I'm not saying don't worry, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the combination of, of, all right, you know, uh, democracy, which only goes so far, right? You know, because, I mean, I think if you'd like had like the Soviet planning office, Gosplan had like, was like being supervised by some sort of like government that was elected in parliamentary multi-party elections, that would have been better. But I think that they still would have had a lot of these calculation problems we're talking about, sure, right? Sure. So, I'm, but I'm not saying like, oh, don't worry, democracy plus some technological advances that haven't happened yet. We'll just take care of all these problems. Don't worry about it, right? What I'm saying is uh, I think that you can have that. I think there are at least some, uh, some sectors of the economy where nationalization uh, might work well. Uh, I, I probably, I'm probably more bullish about that than you are. I, I probably see that as a longer list than you would, right? You know, but I think, but, but, but there are others like uh, like agriculture, for example, where where like some of like the greatest failures of the Soviet and Chinese systems happened, right? Where I'd be much more cautious about that, um, and um, which is which is why uh, which is why you know I'm not saying which is one of the reasons it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons I'm not saying let's just nationalize everything, right? You know, I mm-hmm. but like instead I'd, I'd say, well, we could have socialization in one form or another across the economy, but maybe in a lot of cases, it would, it would have to be, um, it would have to be cooperatization rather than nationalization. Sure. And with regards to nationalization versus private sector, um, uh, I, I, I kind of agree, agree with, do you know Neil deGrasse Tyson? The, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. You know him, yeah. He, he basically, what he says is that scientific developments can only take place with government funding because mm-hmm. there is so the risks are not calculatable the returns are not calc- you can't calculate either it has to be governments mm-hmm. governments can only develop science science but when it comes to technology it seems mm-hmm. to me like the private sector is doing a decent job mm-hmm. um like for example, you know, Zoom we're using it's private. Oh. Probably the brands of our computers, our cars. You know, the, the engineering, the innovation part seems mm-hmm. to be done decently by the private sector, which is which the science behind it is publicly funded, but the technology seems to manifest best. Well, some of the technology. I mean, um, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be using Zoom right now if uh, the Defense Department hadn't invented the internet. Um, you know, the ARPANET. You know, back then, right? So, uh, so I think that. Um, so I think that even as far, you know, even as far as as technology uh, goes, um, you know, some of that, some of that really is uh, developed in uh, in the public sector. But I'm also willing to be a little bit of an empiricist about this and say that, like. Um, you know, if if it turns out that like maybe there are certain kinds of like you know certain types of technology, perhaps right that that uh, that really you know that really benefit from you know from market incentives, right? You know that then um, we don't have to um, you know we like we don't have to go full communist on this and you know and completely uh, completely eliminate them. 
we, we could, though, uh, have uh, what those market incentives look like. doesn't necessarily have to be um, exactly, exactly what we've got right now. In fact, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe the kind of intellectual property regime that we've got right now, um, you know, you, you could say it creates incentives for technological development, but you could also say that uh, in some ways it might, you know, it might hold it back, right? You know, because uh, you, you can't, um, you know, because you can't sort of take what's been developed, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's somebody else's, you know, intellectual property and, and, and kind of, do your own improvements on it or whatever, you know, because, because then you've just, you've just violated that. Right. So I think, um, so maybe you need some kind of incentives, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve this like long-term monopoly, you know, on, on the IP. Right. Um, And, and so, so maybe you could, um, you know, you know, you could even have, uh, you could even have a system uh, where you had, um, you know, where you had like one, you know, one time uh, payouts, you know, for certain kinds of, you know, of technological innovation. Um, but rather than, you know, rather than having this kind of long-term, uh, long-term IP, but, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm willing, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do a little, uh, uh, you know, a little trial and error and, you know, and, 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 and say that, you know, say that if it turns out that, you know, that we do need something, much more like what we've got right now for some of that than you know then then maybe you keep some of those um, some of those features uh, of of the existing system and I guess last thought about this there might also this might also be another place where you have legitimate trade offs between competing goals that like um, that if you that you might very well collectively decide as a society that obviously we like technological innovation right but um, we also don't particularly like uh, you know, letting um, you know, letting Jeff Bezos be a trillionaire and uh, and having his you know warehouse workers you know toiling conditions that are reminiscent of Charles Dickens novels. Uh, so if so, perhaps alleviating you know let's let's say for the sake of argument that like alleviating the second problem reduces the incentives for technological innovation. We might just very well decide, okay, we like technological innovation, but like maybe we're willing to live with a slower rate of technological innovation in exchange for other benefits. Sure. That, that's a very good point. And just, just checking, when do you have to leave by? Uh, uh, it's not super tight, but if we could wrap it up in like the next like 10, 15 minutes, that'd be good. 10, 15 minutes. Okay. It should be fine. Um, so now this, this is the fun part of the interview. Uh, <laughs> Especially because now, I just said that, so I have a good excuse if I don't have a good answer to your question. I, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go! Yeah. <laughs> Very like to answer it, but... <laughs> That's right. Um, so you, you, you debated Stefan Molyneux recently. Did, yes. It was, oh, it was so beautiful. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, so it, it was beautiful. I mean, after you got through the 10 minutes of Stephen talking and then finally got to Ben making a 30-second quite you know point that takes down the whole of everything he just said but you know it was good it was good yeah did you have any reflections on your on your debate with him uh yeah so i'm i'm glad i did it even though um 
even though he did sort of go back on the original terms of it, since uh, since one of um, one thing that I'd really I'd really insisted on right when we were talking about doing it was uh, I you know because I I can't stand this sort of um, YouTube debates where people are talking over each other until like three hours in somebody like gets sick of it enough that they throw in the towel and therefore the other person gets the braggy rights of having endured longer. Right. So, so I really insisted, okay, this is how I want it. This is how I do debates. Right. I want a time limit and I want a moderator. Right. So, um, so like these issues don't come up uh, and he sort of agreed to it, but then like his moderator that he found was was off screen and all they were doing was like sending us like um, uh, sending us these like chat uh, messages with like uh, oh you have like five minutes left for your opening statement or whatever uh, and he more or less paid attention to those but uh, he completely ignored everything else the moderator said uh, and uh, and the time went way over and so you know anyway so but. All that was frustrated, doubly frustrating because his sound system was set up uh, so that if uh, two people were talking at the same time, it would uh, prefer his voice. Uh, so. Do you think that's, that was deliberate? 100% I'd say he did it deliberately. <laughs> I'm just saying. Probably, yes. I certainly wouldn't put it past him. But, um, but it, was, it was fun anyway, right? Since um, I think that, like, in particular, in particular I, was, I was happy with the way it went because – for about the first two thirds, uh, I kept trying to bring up his position on immigration because it's like such an obvious, like staggering contradiction at the heart of his views, right? That he claims to be this, you know, purist, a libertarian ideologue that you know you can't violate the non-aggression principle for for any reason except for this, right? You know, <laughs> uh, and so I, I tried several times to to pivot to that. He kind of batted it away, and then eventually. Um, Eventually, it came up, uh, and and it, and you know, and, and it was astonishing, right? Because like suddenly he's a utilitarian. That like you know, his his that like now um, all that we need to say is that like immigration has some sort of like bad effects, and like that's good enough, right, for his position. Um, and and so so I I thought that like being able to kind of um, sort of highlight that uh, and, you know, and especially tried to do this like bizarre, like concern trolling thing about how uh, it was, it's bad for the third world because of brain drain and it's bad for black people in the United States because they're competing for jobs with immigrants, you know, obviously goals that he cares a lot about, right? (laughs) Yes. Top of his priority. As everybody knows. Right. So, um, so I, I think that like, I think that just sort of being able to point out like, okay, you know, if, if like you're really willing to say that we can violate libertarian principles every time it's going to be good for like racial equality and like the good of the third world, right? Then like we disagree about way less than I thought we did. Yeah, and, you know, he like, he describes himself as this like logic man, the argument guy. And by the end, he was just sort of calling you a communist. Like he was going fully at home on you. No argument. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you well, my original interaction with with Stefan Molyneux uh, before before the debate was like a year ago. Uh, uh, I had um, I had like made fun of him on Twitter because he had written this book called The Art Art of the Argument, 
And uh, in the art of the argument, um, he uh, he gets the definitions of validity, which is about like the conclusion of your argument following from the premise and uh, soundness, right? A sound argument is like a valid argument, true premises, which, you know, whatever. It's, it's a, it's a small thing, but like, this is something that you would like literally learn in the first day of a university logic class. And, uh, and he uh, almost reverses these definitions in the book, right? You know, and, and so, uh, and so I, I give him a little bit of grief about this, that you, you have, like you wrote a book called The Art of the Argument, right? You know, and, and, and you're, you're literally, you're making a mistake that would be on the same level as writing a book about statistics where uh, you messed up what the distinction was between correlation and causality, right? It's, it's that kind of thing. Um, and, and so he like blocked me on Twitter and, and, and uh, I'd... Uh, Snowflake. I put out a, uh, you know... Um, I put out a, 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 a you know a video about this and and uh, you know like found some of the like uh, some of the you know some of the footage of him where he sort of like creeps around the like you know obvious like you know I mean I know this is breaking news you know that like nobody but me has ever figured this out but uh, you know I think uh, I think Stefan Molyneux has some like creepy racial views underlying you know his uh, his politics. So, you know, I, I, I kind of pointed that out uh, and, and, and in the video said, anytime you want to talk about this, right, you know, like, like, like I'm here, we could, we could do this. And, and he ignored it for about a year and then like, you know, a couple weeks before that happened, you know, he was just randomly like, okay, let's do it. He was trying to get the sound source of that. <laughs> um, so... I've, I've, I've obviously, I've, I've read your book, uh, Logic for the Left, uh, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. I've read it. Highly advise anyone watching this to read it. I'll put all the links in the description. So could you tell us about how uh, libertarians are begging the question? Yeah, so the specific libertarian argument that, I, that I'm talking about there, I want to talk about begging the question, um, is the argument from, well, the same thing that uh, Stefan Molyneux uh, was talking about in the debate, which uh, is what's called the non-aggression principle, uh, which, which says roughly you can't, um, you can't aggress against other, you can't initiate force against other people and their property, right? So you can use the for, force defensively, but you, know, you can't initiate it, which, you know, which sounds pretty intuitive since, Obviously, you know, the, the use of force is all else being equal, you know, morally problematic. And, and it's uh, and whatever you think about what the legitimate exceptions are, uh, surely one of them at least is self-defense. So, you know, so that all sounds fine. Uh, but then the problem is that a lot of libertarians will talk like they think that like libertarian economics just follow from this principle um, and that's where I think they get into begging the question. So begging the question just meaning, um, you know, arguing in a circular way, right? You know, that uh, a, you know, smuggling the conclusion into the premises. Uh, because you say, okay, well, all right, you can't aggress against, a, you know, initiate the use of force against a person, all else being equal, fair enough, right? Most people are, are you know, on board with that. But then you say, then it's a little bit funny to talk about, well, I mean, even using the phrase initiate force against property, right? You know, property doesn't really seem like the sort of thing against which you can use force, right? You know, that, uh, 
like it, it's it's you know we it's you know you you don't really think of of you know inanimate property as as being something you can do violence to right so what does that mean right like really what it means is you can't take away uh, property from someone except for maybe as part of some conflict they initiated okay so far so good but now the sixty four thousand dollar question is well um, what kind of property are we talking about here right well you say when you say you can't take away property, do you mean you can't, you could never take away some, any property that someone is currently in possession of? Well, it sounds like, but it doesn't seem like it could possibly mean that because if it did, then we would always just have to like freeze the picture at whatever, you know, whatever the distribution was to give a moment, which would be that, for example, you could recover stolen property, right? You know, that if, if you, um, you know, if you came over here and, and uh, you know, you stole my television, then, like, I, would, I, I wouldn't be allowed to, like, go over, you know, with the police, maybe, and, and, uh, and reclaim it because I'd be taking away something from you you're currently in possession of. All right, next idea. Maybe it means uh, you can't take away property that people uh, are legally entitled to, that if somebody is, like, legally the correct possessor of, of some piece of property, you can't take it away from them. Problem is, that can't be what they mean. Because if that was what they meant, then the libertarian objection to redistribution would, would dissolve, right? Because by definition, if the state is mandating redistribution, then whoever it's being redistributed to is the one with the legal claim on it, right? That's, that's, that's you know, so that's how laws work, right? You know, that they're collective decisions, you know, government. So if the libertarian is going to say things like taxation is theft, right, redistribution is wrong, then it can't mean that either, so really what it has to mean is you can't take away property that people have like a moral right to, right? That it's like just for them to have. But at this point, you're just saying that it's wrong to take things from people if it's wrong to take things from them. It's, it's, it's a tautology. It's totally uninterested. It uh, doesn't do any work because, of course, all the action, all the debate is going to be at, okay, what? property is adjust for people to have, right? You know, that's going to be, that's going to be where the disagreement is. Like nobody's going to say it's fine to take away property that people are justified in having because like that's, that's just a contradiction, right? So, um, so really the argument is what are people justified in having? And then you need some substantive theory of like justice and distribution to answer that question. And just saying it's wrong to take things away if people are justified having them is, is just kind of a, a non sequitur, right? So it's, so, so it's, you're, you're begging the question when you argue for the NAP to libertarianism, because you're just like smuggling in the thing that's actually the bone of contention, which is what, you know, what would a just distribution be? And I have uh, other objections to their system of morality as well. So for example, taxation is theft. No one thinks that. No, like, no, intuitively, you don't, no one thinks, oh, taxation, theft is when someone steals it for their personal gain, not for the gain of the collective. And even if you look at religious texts, they're all against, like, getting rich, becoming, you know, they're all pro-distribution, like, from, you know, thousands of years ago. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, actually, like, I find it really remarkable that um, when... Uh, when people sort of combine this kind of position uh, or even like a more moderate form of like uh, anti-tax, you know, or like, um, 
you know, fiscal conservatism or whatever, uh, with, with a professed allegiance to, uh, you know, for example, Christianity, because, uh, like, literally the only, the only political opinion unambiguously expressed in the New Testament is that you should pay your taxes to the Roman authorities. That's, you know, that, that's it, right? You know, that's, that's, that's sure. the only political position that's taken there. You know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you know? So, uh, and if it's, and I, w- I would think, right, that if you can, if you can pay taxes to a, uh, uh, to a brutal occupying power in order to, you know, in order to enforce their rule over you, then you should certainly be able to pay taxes to a democratic government to pay for social services. Uh, so, so that was just bizarre, but like, even if you're going to take religion out of it, uh, just the idea that, um, that like just whatever, whatever happens to happen in like over the course of a bunch of market interactions, right. That like, that, you know, if you, that, uh, even if you did the fantasy scenario where all of the current distribution of wealth happened in this totally, immaculate way through like what the libertarian philosopher Robert knows calls a uh, capitalistic acts between consenting adults, you know, even if that were the way that it happened, right. Even if like, you know, slavery and colonialism and a hundred other things like that, you know, didn't like influence the current distribution of wealth in the world. The idea that like wherever the chips happened to land in a series of market interactions, uh, defines what um what's like what counts as a as as a just you know distribution and that like and and that people no longer having every penny in their bank account that like they would have without taxes you know is like a human rights issue like you know like your like your right to control your body uh, i mean i have the same intuition it just it just seems it just seems ridiculous on its face, right? That like, that like maybe, um, you know, maybe we can say that somebody currently, posi- you know, being in possession of something, you know, gives us some reason to, you know, to, uh, to have them keep it because, you know, because, re- you know, redistribution is disruptive, whatever, you know, like, okay, I, I could go along with that, right? But, but the idea that like, that always means that, that like, on balance, Right, that like there aren't like there could never be much better reasons that overwhelm that right to to redistribute. Just you know, I mean that just seems absurd. Like you know, like if you um, like I, I had a little mini debate with the uh, Gavin McGinnis, who at least calls himself a libertarian. Uh, I I think he, I sort of think he's a libertarian. Like General Franco was a libertarian, but whatever. Uh, and he uh, and. And in there, right, I, mean, I was trying to press about this, like, okay, so, like, how would the, like, how would a libertarian utopia handle, handle COVID, right? You know, like, like, are, are we, like, can you just, like, you know, like, if you develop a vaccine, can you just, like, uh, sell it for, like, whatever the market will bear, you know, like, uh, <laughs> and have poor people die. <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's what it comes to. Like, we don't care what poor people, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, right, because, uh, like, you know, because it's, like, again, like, saying, like, there's some, like, sort of, like, there's some sort of default that, like, okay, if somebody's currently in possession of something, right, you know, like, it's, it's uh, you know, it could be disruptive to take it away or whatever, but, like, to seriously say that that's more important than, than, than literally, like, um, whether people die of the plague, right, you know, just, just, just seems like something that... Um, 
if you're not, if you don't have like a really, um, you know, if, if you haven't internalized this ethical system so thoroughly that you've just sort of like forgotten that other moral views exist, right? You know, it's something that's very, very hard to argue for. And I think there are, so because you debate right-wingers a lot, I want to help you out a bit. (laughs) I think there are other fundamental problems with their beliefs as well. So, for example, it assumes that businesses want to make money for an, in, like their, their pair view is an infinite time. It's not, you know, if you, if you make, you know, if you do some, if you, if you do some dodgy deals and make money short term, then you can stop selling anything. So th- that's the first one. Second one, they think people are completely autonomous. They have complete free will. Not true. If you have a company with bad business practices, spending 10 times more money on advertising than a company with good business practice, that company is going to make more sales, more profit. Yeah. I mean, so oftentimes people will point out like, oh, uh, we don't need to worry about, you know, businesses doing this, that, or the other thing because like it would be bad for business if they did because, you know, consumers would punish them or whatever. And sometimes that's true to a point, right? But like, um, but obviously... You know, people, you know, as you say, you know, advertising works and people aren't uh, and and not everybody is, is going to be like hyper aware of this stuff all the time. And like, you know, doing extensive research, you know, on, on, on every every business that sells any product they're going to they're going to buy. Most people find that most people find the thought they even should think about that incredibly annoying. Right. You know, so. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, like, and, and of course, and I think your, your point about the short-term incentives is, like, really crucial uh, because, you know, this, the sort of structure of the existing economy doesn't, uh, doesn't incentivize, like, corporate decision-makers to think about whether the company will be making money in 10 years when they might or might not even be working for it, right? Um, it incentivizes them to think about what the next quarterly profits are going to be literally in the next three months, right? You know, like that's, that's, that's the, that's what's always going to be on people's minds, right? Cause that's what they're rewarded or punished for within the system. Um, so, so in some ways it's almost like, um, you know, they're, they're different. These are obviously very different problems, but it's, it's almost like saying, you know, like the same way that like, uh, you know, Soviet bureaucrats, you know, with like, okay, shoddy products because like, their incentive structure was entirely about whether they're fulfilling the goals of the next five year plan. So like, as long as you're, as long as you're producing like X number of, you know, pounds of wheat or whatever, right? Like that's, that's the, that's what matters. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a, it's different of course. Right. You know, but, uh, the, and the problems that it leads to are different, but, um, but yeah, corporate decision maker, you know, they'll, they'll certainly care about how many people are going to, buy their products in the short term, right? So the consumer, you know, the consumer happiness in the short term is a big thing for them. Uh, But like whether that means that like they're going to use up too many of the resources that they'll need to make money in 10 years or whatever, you know, nothing about the way the system is set up incentivizes caring about any of that. Exactly. Can I, um, if if we're wrapping up now, I suppose, um, can I just sort of end with one last question? Yeah, please. Um, and it's, it's quite a general one, but I think it's quite a nice one to end with. Um, yeah. So if you could change 
one thing in the in the entire world, right? And you've been like made eternal dictator. You can change one thing. Um, what would that one thing be? Ooh, the entire world. Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess I would be a. I would have to be a pretty big asshole for it not to be something like, uh, you know, childhood malnutrition. But uh, sure. uh, but if if we if we assume that all of all of those sorts of things that had antecedently been, you know, been, uh, you know, been taken care of. Uh, and, uh, then I would, uh, then, then a, a, a very, um, a very petty complaint that I, I would be, I would be uh, tempted to use my one, uh, dictatorial, uh, wish for, for, re, you know, reimagining the world, uh, uh, on the basis of, uh, would be that everybody would be better at um, understanding how uh, arguments by analogy work. Uh, that, like, if you if you say um, X is like Y and respect Z, uh, or even you know you're making this general pronouncement, um, you know about about X, but you know, and that you wanted to apply to Y, but then like if if were true of Y, it would also be true of Z. Um, that people wouldn't bristle and say, "Oh my God, I cannot believe that you would compare Y to Z." That's 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 so offensive, you know. That uh, you know that like that you could that like just everybody would just sort of be able to calm down and see that things can be analogous in some ways, but not other ways. Uh, then uh, if if uh, you know that if if everything. If every if everything in the long list of things that are obviously objectively more important than that were uh, were taken care of, I would be I would be tempted to use my genie wish on that one. The Pardon? one thing that bothers you. <laughs> so, can we can we get you to promise us to come back in the future? Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. We, we'll we'll get into next our next time next episode whenever that is whenever you have free time we'll discuss. We'll get into Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. I would love that. Let's do it. Perfect. Please. Gosh, gosh. He's, I, I like Ben Burgess a lot. I like him a lot more than I thought I'd like him a lot. Um, as a, as a, uh, as a bland centrist, I'm quite, I'm no, quite impressed. I think we did good adversarial journalism as well, you know. Sure. sure. Definitely. We played devil's advocate where we needed to. We did. We did. Uh, and to be fair, I, I think I think my objections hold. And, and you know, he agreed to it. He was like, "Yeah, when um, the point about nationalism versus democracy at work, yeah, like teachers are in a socialist institution in a, in a sense, but they don't have democracy in the workplace." Mm, sure, sure. So how do you? I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, that was quite an interesting point. I think the the whole point on. Um, nationalization uh, and corporatization and squaring those off was quite interesting. Um, I find that with, I know I find it quite difficult with with socialism um, that it relies so much on a state because my massive issue comes with the fact that you have political football, um, and I'm not a big person on 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 I guess this. It's not a big person on political theory as I am on policy making and stuff, but. I think 
what I've what I've noticed is with look with looking at these things, it's easy to play political football with it. The state is very incompetent. Those are two major things, and I'm not sure whether you do it through devolution and people would then rely on local government, which is more accountable than national government, or you do it through some sort of semi-cooperative semi-nationalisation. There has to be a way that we can offset this, you know, big state, federal government, as the Americans would call it, incompetence, um, and this sort of political politicalization of things. Because with the NHS, we see it. I mean, he gave a good example. The NHS is a beloved thing, but look, it consumes a lot of money. Um, it hasn't got the best track record on on some front. I, I still, you know, I still love the NHS. Don't get me wrong, but I still think there's some parts where it, where it lets us where it, where it lets itself down slightly because of the fact that the state doesn't know how best to make things work at the optimum sort of, you know, efficiency. Uh, and even with the NHS, it's political football. Every election is the same old from the Labour Party, like we'll save the NHS and the Conservatives saying we won't touch the NHS and the Liberal Democrats saying we'll put a penny on the income tax for, you know, I just think there's, it's difficult with, 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 with the reliance on the state because I, I genuinely don't think the state is at all reliable um, on these things. Yeah, I mean, th- that's a good point. Um, what do you think the state of the NHS was? Or f- for that matter, public, publicly funded institutions pre-2008 um, economic recession? Um, damn, that's a question. <laughs> um, because, because some people are saying before that it was good. This is what I'm hearing from. I wasn't. I wasn't in the UK even back then. I wasn't even. No, I was. I was alive. Of course, I was born in 2003. <laughs> I was. Jesus, push you come on. Um, I was alive. Um, and but I wasn't. You know, I wasn't into uh, into politics. And I haven't been into politics until 2016. Yeah. Um, but I think I know. I wasn't. I haven't done too much looking into the specifics. You know, immediately before 2009, so the governments that came in the Blair 1997. But I think with Blair, you had a government which was social democratic, I'd say. It was moderately left-wing. Um, Not far foreign policy, than, let's just say that. Well, you know, yeah, foreign policy was something <laughs> well, else. I think that's Jeez. fair to say. <laughs> I think that is very fair to say. I think that's... Like he sided with down. George Bush. <laughs> how left-wing can you be? <laughs> oh, man, tell me about it. It sounds like neoliberal foreign policy. Oh, God, God, that annoys me. Because um, he was, I actually think otherwise, he was an all right prime minister. Mm. Um, and like you're saying on the NHS and public services, I think he actually did an all right job um, on terms of funding. And But then again, he introduced, um, what were they? He introduced some semi privatization contracts or something. On Blair, on Blair, the pre 2008, I don't know too much. Um, I've done a little bit of looking. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was in, in any better state than it has been after. I think perhaps it was. That's the thing, and this is what I'm saying with nationalisation. You had the, there were some positives from the Blair era, um, but there were actually a lot of negatives as well. Because essentially, you had several different health ministers, and each one of them had a different vision. And where there was Andy Burnham, who sort of increased market operation in the NHS. Or it was Frank Dobson, who was very much a union supporter. It just meant that you had this political football internally in the Labour Party, where you had two different health ministers, you had a few different health ministers with a few different plans. And I mean, just a, a prime example of the state screwing it up is that 
the there was there's an idea that the entire NHS should use the same computer system. Um, and the, co- the I mean the cost of this it was a failure, but it failed. It was it consistently was delayed. The rolling out was delayed, was delayed, it was delayed. And in 2010, the Liberal Democrat Conservative Coalition decided to scrap it. At the end, it cost us 10 billion more. The, the failure cost us 10 billion, and we didn't even get anything out of it. And that is such a good example of how the state really screws it up. People love the NHS. Don't get me wrong. In principle, it's fantastic. But pre, whether that's pre-2008 and post-2008, you have the same problems of you know governments, successive governments, messing it up, helping in some ways, but then messing it up, spending money, throwing money, all sorts of sort of crass and out-of-touch solutions. Where I think maybe, you know, I don't advocate for you know, privatising the NHS, but maybe if it was privatised, the market would have advised against that and you might have had better, at least physical, fiscal sort of reaction to it, really. But I don't, obviously I don't advocate for the privatisation, but I don't advocate for the full nationalisation. I think there needs to be a, a good balance where you have optimum um, efficiency. And cost I guess you cite and decide that it should be privatised more at the moment. You're not happy with its current estate. I'd say, dude, I mean, this is a difficult subject, I'll be honest. I'm not the biggest person in health. I think on... I think it's just funding at the moment is, is key. We've got to start funding it. And we've got to start figuring out the best ways to fund it. And, you know, you know, because you, you, you can always change your opinion. Like next time you come on, you might say, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's diff- It's difficult one. I think I can do more research into it and, and come back with a better answer. On it. But I think essentially, I think it needs, we need to fund it with this time. We need to make sure we're not throwing money at it. We need to make sure we're funding it properly. And there needs to be an element of let's get the market more involved with aspects of it to encourage a not competitive nature, perhaps, but an efficient nature. Um, And also we've got to take the strain off the NHS, I think slightly with, I don't know, maybe I'm in the wrong here, but from what I've seen with my research into education, what the government has done is ever since, I think it was Blair, I think it was Blair, um, education, or maybe it was the coalition government, education has relied on, or school establishments have been put under pressure with targets they have to hit um and i think the same has been done the same was done under blair with the nhs um and i wonder who it was under i think it was under oh, i can't remember who that was under um but there's sort of been more pressure put in that and i'm just wondering if that has also contributed to trying to trying to sort of hit these targets but not actually do anything meaningful with it um, and maybe those should be scrapped as well in favour of actually just helping people and prioritising that. Uh, so whilst we're at it, for, for schools, you think schools should be privatised as well? Oh, shit, no. Oh, God, oh, Jesus, oh. fuck, no. Okay, um, okay. No way. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, God. No Don't. worries. Um, you, had, you had things like, uh, no, totally the opposite. I think we need to nationalise all the schools, have a comprehensive system, abolish grammar, abolish private. Right, so you're um, happy with the schools being... Um, being public fully, but not the NHS. <sighs> um, would it school- sort of, in theory, sure. wouldn't it be susceptible to the same things? You know, because we've, it, during, during my time being in the UK, like, I, yeah, the, the GCSC and A-levels that I did are different to, to the one you're going to be doing. That's true. Um, so they, that's also... I think you're right. But I think also, if you change the education system entirely, I think... 
I don't think the state is perfect, but on, on education, you can still have a quite a happy balance with local authorities, um, perhaps having more control than, than federal government, but at the same time, it is heads of the, the school that has the most control over the school. What we need to do is we just need to fund schools a lot more and change how they're done. So that means cutting the amount of, I mean, going off in Nordic countries, right? And I'm more in favour of facts-based policy. Where I see things work, I don't care if in principle it is, I believe nationalisation here, so I believe nationalisation everywhere. I will believe nationalisation in some parts, I'll believe privatisation in other parts. It just depends where it works. And we see in um, Nordic countries that... You're an empiricist. Yeah, I think, because you see in Nordic countries education works it, it it works because you're not killing children with exams you're not killing teachers with ridiculous tests they have to pass and paperwork and hitting this target there and that target there with you know below par funding for what is an essential uh, you know part of our, our whole society and everything you've got to fund it properly you've got to change higher education and it's just got to be fully, fully public because that's the best way that works. I don't think trying to compete with elitist segregation of schools with grammar, which is proven not to, you know, the, the think tank that I'm currently working with, I don't know if we're doing an introduction at the beginning um, of who I am, but, but basically I work for a think tank. Um, you think know, tank. We can do it now. We can do that. I'm happy to do it now. Sure. Um, I'll finish my point and then we can just do a quick introduction of me. But um, basically the, the work I do with Centre... Um, they they did some research and essentially they showed that there are no disabled. I mean, it's coming out soon. I don't know if it's out yet, but behind the scenes, I can tell you we've seen that there's no disabled children in the schools, physically or mentally disabled, or barely any. There's an unfair advantage to those who don't have free school meals. Um, so that that's in 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 turn that is a symbolism of it benefiting more well-off people. And more well-off people aren't necessarily smarter. I can, as someone who's gone to one of the most elite private schools in the country, I can confirm. I went on a bursary, by the way, so I'm not. But I can confirm that, you know, richer people aren't. In fact, on the whole, they're, they're probably less streetwise, and you know, that, that's how I feel. Hmm. Um, could you tell me the distinction between private schools and and uh, grammar schools sure. and to what extent are they publicly funded sure um so grammar is fully publicly funded i think um but the difference Still, is like that you need to have twelve thousand a year to go to one no, it's there's no there's no so how are they charging people if it's oh no, no they're not charging people but at the end of the day when it comes to so basically the, the school meal analogy i was making was essentially yeah. that people who have free school meals um, will be those who are less well off. Um, and then people who don't are going to be those who are more well off, right? I might be wrong on this, actually. I might be totally wrong. On I might be actually thinking of something else. I'll, ha- I'll probably have to double check this eventually. Actually, can I just really double check that? I'm just going to phone someone quick sure, and double check sure. that. One sec. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. So, so as I was saying, yeah. So my free school meal analogy was essentially you've got You've got people who aren't accepting free school meals are going to be more well-off. People who aren't, uh, pe- no, sorry, people who accept free school meals are going to be less well-off. And people who, free, who don't accept free school meals are more well-off. So if you have a tiny amount of people in the grammar school system accepting, not accepting, sorry, accepting free school meals, then you're showing that there's a tiny amount of people who are financially less well-off. Um, so what I'm trying to say really is there is an element of financial segregation 
in the 11 plus test. I mean, so, so, so sorry. My point was, sorry, I got totally off, off track there. Grammar schools are, are free, state funded, but they're differentiated because there's 11 plus tests and the 11 plus test decides whether you go into grammar or you stay in the state, but they're both publicly funded. Um, and with private, they're just private, private schools are privately funded, but they have tax exemptions as a charity, which I don't believe in, but that's what it, that's what it is. I mean, why do they have tax ex- exemption? That makes no sense. Do they shouldn't because they're, they're, biz- they're like full on businesses. I mean, having gone to, having gone to one of them and you, you deal with the people at the top, they just care a lot about how they look a lot about the intake they have. Hey, I mean, what you could say is we'll, 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 we'll get state schools to outdo private schools, but you can't get state schools to outdo private schools because the money. private schools, money. And they have 40,000 40, per pupil funding, 30,000 per pupil funding. We would never reach that. We can't even reach 10K per pupil funding, you know, or sorry, or 20K or so, you know. Um, we can't reach ridiculous amounts like 40K per head, you know. And they can afford to keep hiking it because you've got Russian and Chinese um, oligarchs, you've got inherit- people with inherited money, people with loads of money, who maybe not inherited new money, but still, who, who pay these ridiculous amounts in cash, if you will, in one go, you know, for a whole year worth of education. That's, that's, a year, that's 40 grand for a year's worth of education. That's ridiculous, you know. And I was on a bursary and my bursary still meant I had to pay a few grand for it right and that is and that and 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 that was considered giving someone a bursary so at the end of the day i think you know it's you can't phase out privates we've gone totally off topic by the way but you can't phase out private schools without just totally getting rid of them and making a really good state system and to link it back to our original conversation yes go on i actually think what what you're describing is one of the ways that the class difference manifests itself in society. Yes, absolutely. If you I think that's your right. That's how the that's how the absolutely right. rich stay rich. Absolutely and how right. the poor stay poor. Because you know, right. if if you're rich, you can send your kid to private school. If you send yeah. them to private school, yeah. much more likely to be successful, yeah. get paid higher. If yeah. you're poor kid Probably even the status schools in the poor areas, they're worse quality anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And you, you, what you'll find is um, you go to Eton, right? I didn't go to Eton, but I know a lot of my mates went to Eton. Mates went to Eton. Um, and, they, and they're told they're going to be the next prime minister. And they're told they're going to be the next bloody MP or senator in I don't know, not senator in America, that's a bit far, but you know, like that sort of level of, um, like, I know, you know, high profile people, celebrities, high earners, politically powerful, financially powerful, whatever. They're, they're promised these things, basically. Um, and I went to Winchester College, and I mean, they're slightly more timid there. But you still know you're going to get into a good position in society. People mess about there all the time because they know they're going to get into a good position, right? And they know they're going to get A stars and A's and eights and nines and they're going to get really good. And, they, and then 35% of us are going to get into Oxford. I mean, we're guaranteed that. And then when you get into Oxford, that's another ball game because you get into Oxbridge, you're, you know, you're, you're, one, of you, one of you is going to be the next prime minister. I mean, if you look at the amount of 
sorry, I'm going on a total rant. No, here. no, it's, if you it's, look at the, it's quite relevant to our topic actually. Well, I think, and you know, you look at the amount of Oxbridge prime ministers, right? Who was last on Oxbridge prime minister? Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown spent that much time as prime minister. Then you had Tony Blair, who spent that much time as prime minister. Oxbridge, David Cameron, Nick Nick Clegg as well, um, who was in the coalition government. Theresa May. Boris Johnson, who spent short times, but I mean, Boris Johnson might come to an end soon, might continue going, who knows? Dominic Cummings, yada yada, so forth. Um, and then who, who is before, who's before Tony Blair? Oh, John Major. No, hang on, was John Major Oxbridge? I don't know, just my bad. John Major actually wasn't Oxbridge. He had quite an interesting upbringing, quite impressive. Wasn't a good prime minister, but was still quite impressive. But then before him, Margaret Thatcher Oxbridge. She's, and she served a chunk, and John Major served like a bit compared to that. So what you find is, you go to these institutions and you're going to, you, you, someone, someone amongst you is going to become prime minister or an MP or a top cabinet minister. And, you know, you have the coalition government, which is like the cabinet of billion, millionaires rather. Um, so you're right. It does. It absolutely de- decides who you're going to become. It absolutely gives you that political position, at least political power. I haven't looked into financial power, but I, I can assume that you're going to get so much financial power. Like 99% of people who go to Eton are going to end up being financially successful in the, in the broad sense of our capitalist system, financially successful people. That, that's very interesting. And, um, y- you know, another thing that's interesting is how the, the right-wing populists seem sure. to vote in for people, for the elites. And for the elites who pretend they're on the side of the working class, but mm. you you mentioned Boris Johnson again. Sure, sure. Always, he's been always the rich kid in his life, right? He hasn't. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have Trump, who's been a flipping billionaire, sure, and he's sure. meant to be standing up for the little people against the elite. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I, I see what you mean. I my one. It's tough because I feel like you can get really rich people who really care. You get you, you have people like right um, Tony Benn. Tony Benn was a Labour Party leader. Um, I'm pretty yeah, he was of course he was. Um, and he was a highly successful, highly pro people's pro pro people um, Labour leader. And you know, and he went to private school and he was very very privileged, as privileged as some of the Tory leaders, but at the end of the day, I, and again, you have billionaires who, well, you don't, you don't have any billionaires. I don't think you're moral, but you have millionaires who are moral and care about their workers. Um, and you can have these privileged people who go to these institutions and use their, like there's nothing wrong with privilege as long as you use it to the right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It would be another kind of bigotry to say if you're rich you can't care about obviously yeah i think there's an element of that but i think you're right i think there's an element also of the the populist right saying we care a lot about the poor people and then but them just not having a history of caring at all they can just they just know how to say the right things and run to the top of a you know what is it run to the front of a they don't lead the crowd they don't lead a movement but they run to the front of the movement to do well right they they rely on failures of of liberal center-right governments and liberal center-left governments to 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 surge to the front forefront i think that roughly the same can be said for any extreme they always surge off the basis of failures of the status status quo as it's um 
But the thing is, I think we find then is that what we're finding now is that it unravels. With COVID-19, with a serious crisis, Trump has just unraveled himself because it shows that he's incompetent beyond words. He's incompetent. And I know several, even Joe Biden would do better. And I don't like Joe Biden uh, like at all. I despise Joe Biden, but he could do better. In fact, despise is a bit of a strong word. I just don't like him. Um, so I think the same can be said here in this country. We're losing, well, you know, Boris Johnson's losing popularity and Keir Starmer's gaining popularity because you're seeing the difference between someone who is genuinely like, qualify for the job and someone who just genuinely isn't qualified for the job and has no principles um so you see that and you see it unraveling but the fact that we got there in the first place is quite interesting and i think you're and again going back to the original point it's it comes down to that educational educational divide these people got where they are and they claim to be for the people but but they went through the entire system and, and work with the system they still work with the system despite being populist right wing aware on the side of the people um yeah to my to my left here we have we have guest host pushkin first time first time on the show would you like to introduce yourself to our audience pushkin absolutely it's been it's it's absolute pleasure to be on here muhammad and hopefully i can come on in the future as well absolutely um we've just had a we've just had a very long 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 hour two hours of filming i'm just filming the introduction after so that's why my lighting's a bit different um but essentially, yeah, sorry, my camera's also focusing. Yeah. So essentially, I'm, so my name is Pushkin Defire. I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm, I, I describe myself as a politically center, center, center leaning left person. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm mainly describe myself as a pragmatist in policy. I go after evidence based policy. Essentially, I support a strong welfare state. Um, while also supporting free markets and free trade, um, so and I and I currently work for Centre Think Tank, which believes in much the same. Um, and I'm the environmental spokesperson at the moment. I'm working on a Green New Deal 2.0 policy paper to stimulate the economy post coronavirus. Um, I also am a Liberal Democrat member, uh, becoming a bit more reluctant, but still sort of hanging in there. Um, and I sort of do activism every now and again. Uh, helping out specifically helping out candidates that I think would be very good for the party and for the country as well and for their for their local area. Um, so that's in, in a long-winded way. That's me. Uh, pleasure to be on the uh, podcast and again. I hope I can be of use in the future as well. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, I think I think we should do one episode with your whole crew from Centre. Think that. Oh, I mean, we'd love to, man. I mean, people like Torin, who who I phoned up. Yeah. Uh, just now. Um, people like Torin. Uh, who's our director? Um, I mean, heck, all of us would love to be on here, uh, and those of us that can make it, I'm sure, would do a very good job. I and mean, we're all very qualified. We're all very young. We're all very dynamic, and we all get on super well. Um, and I think that's what makes our makes our makes our think tank very different. We're, we're from a very diverse background, each and every one of us. Whether that's Wales with Lena Farrat, who's a who's a parliamentary candidate, um, or that's the North. Um, for, for Sam Harris, who's a Labour Party member and a momentum activist um, in the Labour Party and also Extinction Rebellion and School Strikes for Climate. And then there's me down south. We've got a f- a f- some people in London. You know, we've got people all over the country and we're diverse in colour, uh, ethnicity rather, in religion, in 
beliefs, you know, Labour Party Conservative, Liberal Democrat, non as well, no, um, no affiliation. And I think, uh, yeah, as a group, we'd love to come. I mean, we get on really well. There's no toxicity. There's no in-party play, in, in think tank play. And we genuinely get on and we genuinely want to see a different country with a different politics. That's much more, that's much more constructive and pragmatic about everything. And uh, uh, where would you like to tell us your website? Where yeah, we- totally. So, um, center, if you want to check us out, centeruk.co.uk, um, check out our Twitter, which is, uh, at, uh, let me just double check quickly. Sorry. I'm just going to double check. No, that's fine. That's fine. So check out our Twitter. So at center think tank and, um, you can also find us on Facebook if you look on the website. I can't remember the at off the top of my head. Um, also, follow me on social media if you'd if you'd like to have the honour of following such an intellectually Wait, stimulating me, young fellow. Let me make your social media stuff appear on the screen. Oh sure! Okay. Wow, that, that's screen, amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you. Yeah, it's here. Wow! Incre- yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Follow it, please. Follow it. Love. That's the news I agreed to come on here. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you want to shout it out anyway? Sure. Um, Pushkin Defire, uh, at Pushkin Defire rather on Twitter. Um, and my Facebook isn't very active. I try to keep it amongst friends. So just follow me on Twitter. Um, and I'll share my podcast on there and you can check out my own. Oh yeah, you do your Center. own podcast. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, which is with Center Think Tank. Uh, I run those. I'm doing a lot at the moment. Um, and you know, we interview people and stuff. And you know what, Mohammed, we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you down there and we'd love to interview you have a little bit of a chat. You know, I think me, me and Mohammed can speak for hours on end about anything yeah. really. Yeah. 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 It, it, it was, thank you very much for agreeing to it. It was, Pleasure. it was probably my, my favorite interview out of, so very He's a great guy. Ben, yeah. Ben yeah. And you, you did a great job uh, assisting <laughs> me. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on either with another guest, with another uh, guest to interview or with your with your whole crew uh, looking forward to it and whilst, if you've watched this till the end guys make sure to like share subscribe everything okay oh yeah, yeah thank we, you very much. we end we end this we end our episodes with a heart symbol by making okay. this heart symbol yeah yeah okay okay, okay. it's nice cool <laughs> perfect cool um